Hello, my friends. I am so happy to be back with you. I am just returned from Brazil and it was so great. So here I am sitting on my couch again, just, you know, reflecting on all the time we had in Brazil and all the people we met and also happy to be back here with you. So hello, all my friends from Brazil. I just love them. And I just have to give a shout out to Emily and Marcella and Leticia and Ingrid, the sort of four foursome from Janine's room and Caillou and Pedro and Mateus and John Paul and all the rest. I, so many names. And of course, just my heart for Vanessa. I love you all. And I told them about this podcast. So I'm hoping some of them are listening and understanding, practicing their English. And for the rest of you, my faithful listeners, thank you. Um, thank you for indulging me there with my new friends from Brazil and old friends. You know, let me just say to everybody, it's, it's this strange and wonderful thing, this act of God, that when you go on a mission trip, here's what I think. I think God knows you have this limited time to, to be used by him in that place. And so I think he wants to just get to it. And what I've experienced is so often, as I've been on many mission trips, so often God gives you this supernatural love for the people you meet. And it's not just sentimentality or getting caught up in the moment. Please don't fall into that cynical trap. I've been tempted to as well. No, it really is the love of God from God put in your heart to instantly bond with these people. It's such a beautiful thing. And I've seen it happen again and again, and even, even at home sometimes, not on a mission trip. You just know it's from the Lord and not of yourself. Don't you love that? I love that. On this trip, that happened over and over. And I um, remember one moment when we first got there, uh, Maria had us, the, the American team, get up and introduce ourselves to her team. It was before the campers got there. And so when it was my turn to stand up, I was like, hi, I'm Susie, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I looked out and I just met eyes with Leticia and hadn't, hadn't talked to her yet, but I was saying, you know, you are our, you are our family. You are our sisters and brothers in Christ. And she and I locked eyes and she smiled and it was like, God just bonded us together in that moment. We hadn't even spoken to each other yet. That's the kind of stuff that happens. And I, it happens at home too. And I, I hope you have had that experience in the body of Christ. And just think back to when God has done that, has bonded your heart to a fellow believer and how special that is, how much that just shows us that God loves us and wants that kind of fellowship for us. I love that. So we had a great time in Brazil. It was an awesome trip, um, awesome time of seeing God move, really. And I'll tell you what, it was different from every other Brazil trip we've done, which we, before COVID, we did a bunch of them. Um, and I'll just sum it up to not spend too much time on this. I'll sum it up by saying we encountered a hardness of heart in some of the people there that we had personally never seen before in Brazil. So of course it took us by surprise. And my heart was so burdened for them. But, but we also saw God do what only he can do. And it had nothing to do with what we did except our prayer 
and we saw many hearts softened and changed. Isn't it just amazing when you have the honor of witnessing, hey, God did that. Look at what God is doing. It's, it's just incredible. It's indescribable. And we need to pray today. No matter where you are or what you're doing, no one is excluded from this. It isn't just for mission trips. It's for every day. Even if you're staying home today, taking care of a sick kid, or you're just working from home or whatever, you might think you have a boring day ahead or a busy day with no time to think. Well, this is your reminder that I need to pray. We all need to pray. Lord Jesus, open my eyes to see what you are doing around me and in me that I might glorify you. Remembering to have eyes to see what only God could do, that he's moving, that he's real, that he's doing things in our lives. That's what it's all about. So if you are burdened by hearts like cement, I pray for the cracks that you will see when God is moving, that there will be those cracks in the cement. The cement is still there maybe, but there's a crack where a seed of truth can find a place to grow. Okay, episode for today, a story and a thought. Are you ready? This is the Pause and Ponder podcast with me, Susie. I hope that this will give you just a few minutes to consider the greatness of God today. Okay, so I want to share with you today something I was thinking about before I left for Brazil, uh, I guess two weeks ago. And of course, I was actually hoping to record it before I went to Brazil so I'd be ahead. Well, it didn't happen. So here I am doing it now. And you know what's so funny is that, like I said, I was reading this passage and thinking these thoughts before Brazil. And then it was actually God preparing me for some of the things in Brazil. Don't you just love that? You know, so cool. And so I got a richer appreciation for this passage and for these thoughts while I was there. God's so good. So anyway, I want to start with a story. Have you ever heard of Harry Ironside? He's a theologian and pastor um, from, he died in 1951. So from, you know, the first half of the of the 20th century and is still pretty famous today. I actually looked up his bio on Wikipedia because I was like, I better make sure I'm saying the correct thing about him. And it was so interesting because he's Canadian. Oh, woohoo. I didn't even know that because of course, you know, I'm Canadian. And that was kind of exciting and just really interesting to read about his life. Here's an interesting tidbit. He, um, when he was born, his mother you know, it was like in 1895 or something, I forget, 1800. But anyway, it was a difficult birth and they thought he was dead, the the baby. So they just put him to the side and were focusing on the mother because she was struggling physically. 40 minutes later, they realized the baby had a pulse. And so then they did whatever they did and he lived. Isn't that crazy? And before 1900, this was. So that was his beginning. Eventually, he moved to America, and uh, he started preaching. This was also interesting. He started preaching to 
you know, like people under a tent that he made when he was 11, 11 years old. Uh, that's insane. Uh, but hey, young people, God had people coming to him and he was preaching to them as an 11 year old. So God can do anything through anyone. He grew up, he became a pastor. He wrote over a hundred books and his commentaries are still read today. And that's why you might've heard his name or heard a pastor say his name, or maybe you've never heard of him. I don't know. But anyway, my story about Harry Ironside. One of the things he did was he was a visiting professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And one time he was there, this was in the very beginning of Dallas Theological Seminary, DTS, and they were going bankrupt. They had no money, they couldn't pay their bills, and the whole place was about to close. So the leadership got together and they were praying that God, you know, would do something about this. And Harry Ironside prayed uh, something along the lines of, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Would you sell some cattle and give us the money to pay these bills? And while they were still praying, the secretary came in with a check from a nearby rancher who had sold some cattle and was giving them the money and it covered all their debts. Isn't that cool? And I tell that story today because the cat, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills is from Psalm 50. And that's what I want to talk about today. Psalm 50. And I guess the when I read this before my trip to Brazil, I was thinking about what I've been talking the last few weeks um, on the podcast about, about this idea of concrete lived out experience that was mentioned in the book I've been reading about Bonhoeffer and just, you know, different descriptions of that, different ways of expressing what this life with Christ is, is like and should be like. And so I was thinking about that. And then, uh, you know, a few days later I read this Psalm 50 and I was like, here's the thought I had. It's like, Oh, here is God describing God himself describing what he wants this life with him for us to look like. So I thought that was cool because I'd been focusing on what somebody else had said. That's an expression, I believe, from Bonhoeffer, or at least from Andrew Root, the, the guy who wrote the book about Bonhoeffer, um, this concrete, lived-out experience of the revelation of God. And then in Psalm 50, it's God's description, I believe, of that same thing. So I thought that was cool. And then I also paired it, God paired it for me with John 15, which is Jesus describing what he wants this life with him to look like. Instead of concrete lived out experience, those aren't Jesus's words. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Live, dwell in me. And, you know, you will bear fruit and goes on. John 15 concrete lived out experience put into Jesus's words. So I just thought that was kind of cool. How does God describe this life? And what does he want it to look like? And you know, this isn't just about, I have to always say, this isn't just about getting saved, about becoming a Christian. I believe God is describing, he's actually talking in Psalm 50 to people who profess that they follow God. Um, it, it's helpful for us who have committed to Christ to bring us back, to get us back on track, to remember 
that it's not about what we think that life should be, but what God says it is. And that even though this life on earth is just a blip of, you know, eternity, just a, just a blink, God does care a lot what we do while we are here. Here's a thought before I even read the psalm. Did you ever think about what God is doing in your life to prepare you for a future job, a future role or ministry? Not, you know, 10 years from now, but that future job in eternity. Doesn't that make you look at your life differently? I know I want to be prepared for what God has ahead of me, not 10 years from now, not 20 years from now, but what he desires of me in eternity, because we will have jobs to do. I don't know, totally a like sidetrack thought there. I just think it's encouraging to remember that the roles that we have and the things that God is doing that don't seem that important or substantial in the world today, it could be the training ground for what God considers very important. So hang in there. All right. So what does it say? Well, like I said, first it says the phrase um, the that God has the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not going to read the whole Psalm because, you know, it'll get too long. But the first thing that occurred to me before I got to the part about this is what God says our relationship with him would be like is the context of this is it's God speaking and he's saying like, I don't like your sacrifice. Don't come to me with these empty rituals, your sacrifice of bulls and goats, which of course is how the Jews came to worship God. And they were supposed to be asking for repentance for their sins through that sacrifice. But he's like, I don't like your sacrifice. Do you think, and here's the the sentiment. Do you think I need this, that you're giving me something I need? And I was like, Ooh, wow. You know, God doesn't need anything. It's actually an attribute of God. It's called a seity. I think that's how you say it. Um, and he's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And we don't manipulate him into giving us things either. And he makes that very clear in Psalm 50. And so I thought it was interesting because even Harry Ironside used that passage, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, to ask God, to give him something. And it's not in the Bible. It's not in the context of God has so much he wants to provide for you. Like he has the cattle on a thousand hills. Look at how much God wants to give you. It's actually a whole different sentiment. God is saying, I I own everything. The whole world is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. What, what do you think you're going to give me? You know, you can't do anything for me. And I, I, prob- I probably sound a lot harsher than God. I'm sure God is not harsh in saying that, but it's true. Let's see. What does it say? So he says, like I said, I don't need your sacrifice. And then he says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that move in the field is mine. And then he goes on to express, this is where I'm getting this. I don't need that. He says, the next verse, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The rhetorical answer is no. And then in that context, God tells us what he does want from us. So, you know, stop with the empty rituals, the habits, offering something to God, and instead give him this, what he is going to say. And so it says this, the very next verse, let's see, verse 14. 
Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's it. That's what after God says, hey, I don't need your sacrifice. I don't need, you know, these things you're doing with no, without your heart in it, even words that you're saying. I don't need you to read your Bible every day just to check it off the list. I don't need you to go to church every week just to say, hey, I was there. I'm making God happy. God says, no, what I want from you is this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Be grateful. Give thanks. Perform your vows to the Most High. That's commitment. A vow is a promise. Make a promise to God. Make a commitment to God to live for him. And also, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And But the thing that captured my attention in that verse was the vow. Perform your vows. You know what? That's making a promise. What have you promised God this year, this month, today? You know, we so often make New Year's resolutions, but how about instead of New Year's resolutions, we make a promise to God. He wants us to promise him, to promise him a covenant to live our life in service to him. Promise him that we will meditate on his word. Promise him to live a pure life, you know, to put sin away from us with his help, of course. But this is a description of our commitment to God expressed in prayer and lived out in life. He didn't want just something lived out in the temple or in our quiet moments with God. He's asking for a commitment to him for how we live every moment with God's help, of course. It makes me think of when Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, he let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the same thing. Perform your vow. Make a promise to God. And in that verse I read was in Matthew. In Luke, he says, take up his cross daily, daily, every day, not just once. Oh, yes, I did that because back in, you know, 1982, I accepted Jesus into my heart or something. No, daily. That's a lot. That can't be done without God's help. So asking for help, you know, it said, call upon me in the day of trouble. That's dependence on God, asking me in faith, receiving help, deliverance, freedom, victory. So this is our relationship. We ask for help. We receive help. There's a back and forth. And the purpose of it all and the product of it all is glorifying God, a life that points to Jesus. People see God in your life. That's what God wants. I love that. And what was it? Two verses of how God expresses this lived out experience of what our faith looks like in action. But Psalm 50 also goes on to describe those who don't do this. So there's only, there's only two groups of people in the whole world, those who commit to Christ and those who don't. And those who don't are called the wicked. And in the very next verse, God describes those 
who refuse to do this, who say, no, I'm not going to live my life that way. And here's what he says. What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Ooh, that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of brutal. Like, you're coming here and giving lip service. You don't have a right to do that. Goes on to describe them. This is God's description of those who reject living for him. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. That would be the word of God, right? Rejecting the Bible is God's truth or rejecting, applying it to our life. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulteresses. So rejoicing in evil, rejoicing in sin. It goes on. It gets worse, guys. You give your mouths free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. So we are known by our words. You, and more about words. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. Slander and gossip. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Ooh, the wicked, those who don't follow God, think something of God that isn't true. You thought I didn't care. You thought I was okay with all this. But now I rebuke you and lay this charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Ouch. But you know what? It's, it's true. There's a judgment. There's a judgment coming for our actions, for our words, every word. Wow. The world wants to tell us there's no judgment and they make a God of love who doesn't judge anything. But we don't get to decide who God is. The Bible tells us who God is. It's what God decided to reveal about himself. And this is it. But that's not what he wants. He's saying this so that we can change our life. It ends with back with the one who stops being wicked. The one who chooses to live for God. The last verse. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, like he just said, I want a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's sobering. And I was reminded of this psalm over and over in my time in Brazil. And I had been thinking about it before I left. A very, I know it might have seemed long, but it's really a very short message from God. This is what I want from you. This is what I don't want from you. What will you choose? It's your choice. And in John 15, we get maybe a shorter version, right? Uh, from Jesus himself, Jesus's words of what he wants in a relationship with us. And also what Jesus doesn't want from us, how he feels about those who reject him, who say, I'm going to live this life on my own, on my own terms. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that would be the wicked, those who reject him, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that's the discipline, that it may bear more fruit. Those that don't bear fruit are cut off and burned up. And those that do bear fruit are pruned so that they'll have more fruit. 
Abide in me and I in you. And also it says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's like the performing the vows, right? Obedience. Obedience to Jesus is the same as performing a vow, promising God to live for him. And chapter 15 here, that section ends with ask whatever you want. You know, if you abide in me, you can ask whatever you want and I will do it for you. So I see all the same elements. That was my main um, thing to ponder today is what does God himself say about what he wants in a relationship with us? You know, we have all of our modern terms that have become cliche. Well, God's word is never cliche. We have in the Old Testament, God expressing it in Psalm 50. And here in the New Testament, Jesus expressing it in John 15. Asking for help, commitment, promise, obedience, and receiving the fruit. The fruit is the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what we receive from God as we abide in him. And in both the description of those who reject living that way, who choose to live a different way, cut off and burned up in John 15 and torn apart in Psalm 50, a reminder that there is a judgment to come. In John 15, those people were just described as no fruit. It's kind of vague, but in Psalm 50, they reject his word. They forget that there is a God. They rejoice in evil and use words for evil, judgment, and slander. And they're religious, so they're, they're making some sort of effort towards God, but their heart isn't in it. And yet, it's not just about getting saved. Even as believers, we have a choice. Today, we have a choice. Will we live today as God desires? Not in rituals or just habits of Christianese, you know, whatever that looks like, but meeting with God, coming to him with a sacrifice of thanksgiving coming to him with a commitment to live for him in each moment and expecting him, having faith, expecting him to deliver us, to bear fruit in us, to change us, staying in that constant communication with him. So I have to ask you, what will your promise to Jesus look like today? Because God never changes. His desire for us to live this way is the same today as it was to the Israelites back when Psalm 50 was written. God's heart is this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows, your promise to the Most High and call upon him in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, God says, and you shall glorify me. Thanks for listening. I pray God will meet you in concrete ways as you live out your faith today. May we have eyes to see what he is doing in our midst. Till next time.